This podcast is brought to you by People Dancing and was recorded in front of a live audience at the People Dancing International Conference, Glasgow 2017. Episode 1, Sangeeta Isvaran, Wind Dancers Initiative. But from one rock star to another, I have the deepest pleasure in welcoming Sangeeta Isvaran, founder and managing trustee of Wind Dancers Trust and creator of Katradi Technique to talk and probably move you. Um, I first met Sangeeta two years ago at the Cardiff Conference and she inspired us all. And so it is with great pleasure that I welcome Sangeeta for you. Thank you. Banji Bandale Kura Bandale Banji Bandale Kura Banji Bandale This is a gypsy woman from a nomadic tribe called the Kuravanjis in Tamil Nadu. Not many people know about her because she's from a lower caste. Her voice is not heard in the classical arenas of Chennai, but in all the villages in Kanchipuram, she's the queen. She's the one that travels alone, that crosses the seas, that foretells the future of kings and queens. She is the other, and she has a place. And that is why I love the work that I do, as I'm sure you all do. Because there is a place for the other, the untouchable, the unwanted, not just outside, but inside too. We create spaces of otherness, where our otherness can blossom fully, give expression fully. Otherwise, why dance? I had planned on starting with the Kuruvanji, but I have to confess that I am terrified. I am honored, <laughs> but I'm terrified too. I have uh, never aimed at being the inspiration of anybody or anything. So um, I want to confess that freely before I continue. When I was invited to come again to people dancing, I was delighted. The last experience was something that filled my heart, nourished my soul, because for the first time I met other people doing something that was so close to what I felt and what I wanted to do. I learned so much. So when Richard and Chris asked me to present at People Dancing, I decided to use this as an excuse to ask myself the question that I periodically go through. Why do I do what I do? I can't answer this question easily. 
and I ask this often and often to recenter myself in my practice. Why do I do what I do? And with all the answers that were sleeting through my in the last couple of months, there was one story that came back to me, one stream of thought that I would like to share with you. 15, 16 years ago, I did a workshop with sex workers in Chennai, India, my hometown. And there was a lot of dancing, a lot of majja. We had a good time. But the purpose of the workshop was to reimagine futures. They had gotten together to see if they could build a collective and maybe start some kind of a business, a small entrepreneurship that could maybe help them get more money. And I was there as a facilitator to get the group together, make a strong collective, and see if what was inside could find expression outside and could have the strength to actually take it forward in some kind of a strong action. So as one of the exercises in this workshop, I asked them, so, I'm giving you a paper and a pen. Write just one word. I knew many weren't comfortable with reading or writing. I offered to help. I said, just one word. Write it on the chit of paper. And this word has to be something that is very important for you, that has weight for your future. Just one word, a phrase, but a word would do. So they wrote on the chits, they folded the chit, they put it in a bowl for anonymity, and then we all picked up chits, and then we read the chits. I was expecting a multitude of words, which I could then weave together and make something from a personal vision to a shared vision of the future. It sounded awesome in my head. <laughs> it didn't work. But it didn't work for the most beautiful reason of all, because Every chit of paper except one. Every chit of paper had the same word. Love. And in my stupidity, I was young and stupid and slightly older and still stupid now. <laughs> I didn't realize the enormity of what I had just received. And I said, okay. My plan is not working, I need to stick to plan, multitude of words, I need to get this together, weave the words together, make a tapestry. Okay, guys, here's another chit of paper, take it, <laughs> write another word, you're not allowed to write the word that was written before. <laughs> okay, covered all my bases. So we started again. So they wrote papers, they put it in, we picked it out, and we read them. I have never read so many synonyms for love in my mother language. Anbu, pasam, nesam, natpu, torimai, sneham, premam. So we made a tapestry of love. It was so beautiful, and I was intrigued. These are women that have suffered quite a bit of abuse. Some of their stories shocked me beyond understanding. One had been kidnapped by a group of men she was servicing, dumped in a city, 
10 hours away, had to beg for months to get the money to come back home because that was the age, no cell phones. There were stories like these, but these women were still wanting to get out there and engage, form relationships. And I was amazed. So I did this particular exercise over multiple workshops. The next one was in Maluku, Indonesia, groups of Christian and Muslim youth fighting for the last 10 years, huge violence, killing, murder. And we had this workshop. Again, pass the chits out. I swear to you, I'm not lying, every one of them had the word chinta, love, in that. Did it in Brazil, juvenile delinquent home, the mission to reduce aggression, love. And I asked myself, what is happening? And the answer is there. That is what I wanted to engage with. People need connection. We seek positive connection. That is what affirms us, affirms our being. And that's what I would like to do with Gatradi. That technique, yes, it is about finding solutions, it is about transformations, we work in the realms of education, empowerment, conflict resolution, yes. But it has to come from a personal space and a personal space of positivity and positive connection. Otherwise, all the blah, 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 it has no value. But is connection, let me ask you this question, is connection verbal or based on language? With, could be sign language too, right? Is it based on language, is it verbal? In my practice, Bharatanatyam, which I've learned since I was small. The first verse we learn, for those who had come to Cardiff, I had explained this verse, which forms the foundation of my technique, but I'd like to do it again, so bear with me. It says, where the hand goes, let the eye follow. Where the eye goes, let the mind follow. Where the mind goes, let the heart follow, and only then do we have understanding, connection, comprehension. Physical movement followed by the senses, noted. Analyzed by the brain, what is it? A flower, a garbage can, felt by the heart. You have to go through all these levels to reach true understanding. Physical, sensory, intellectual, emotional, intuitive. That is the foundation of Katradi. In our education today, in our thought process today, we privilege only the rational, we privilege the logical, we privilege the scientific, what you can prove once, twice, thrice, which is fine, it's wonderful. But that is not all. Conflict doesn't begin here. Conflict begins here. Love too doesn't begin here. Love begins here. 
When I say here and here, obviously it's all happening in the brain, I know the science behind it, but it is just a metaphorical position, right? Where do we position ourselves? And emotional understanding, physical understanding, sensory awareness, all this blends in our understanding of the universe, in our interpretation of the data that comes in. We are not solely rational beings as we would like to pretend to be. So what does it actually mean? Do I go into a Cartwright workshop and say, follow your hand with your eye? No, that would be silly, <laughs> just a bit. But the workshops usually are designed to develop a particular line of thought on multiple levels. For example, even if you just take the whole reimagining futures, right? The first thing, when we think about seeing somebody or seeing something new, is the eyes, right? Before even we reach out a hand and say hello, we connect with the eyes, maybe we smile, maybe we don't. But when you work with marginalized communities, when you work with people who've gone through abuse or through a strong trauma like the tsunami or the earthquake, very often their bodies are closed, their eyes, their heads, everything goes inwards because of fear. So the first thing I do with them is something I call big eyes. Can everybody here do big eyes, please? Big eyes. Big, big, bigger. Can I say big eyes? Big, I can't say much, but yes. Okay. <laughs> big eyes, small eyes. Big eyes, small eyes. And then we stare at each other. We do big eyes, small eyes at each other. And by now, people are laughing, and it's like everybody's loosening up a bit. And then I say, focus. Find a partner. And you keep that focus, and you follow, and you grab somebody. And then you build another series of movements as partners. And then you say, focus, find another group. And the two becomes four. But it is all linked with the eyes. And we're saying, open, bigger, bigger. We're activating this entire region, right? And then you bring an emotion. How do you smile? Caricatures, when you cry, <laughs> whatever. You bring an emotion, but you keep reinforcing the focus. Sometimes. I use silly Bollywood music. It's again a great way to develop your focus. Up, down, up, down, up, down. It's really, really fun too. So we work for about half an hour to 45 minutes with the body and with eye contact, with the gaze. Only then do we come to the aspect of, so what do you see? What are you searching for? What do you want to see? Come, draw me a picture of how you see the world from tomorrow. But sight is not just a function of the eyes. It's a function of multiple, multiple aspects of our existence, of how we interpret what we see. So that is Katradi. That we take an idea and you interpret it on multiple levels and then you ask those essential questions. So it is very clear that before even we deal with the subject at hand, and it could be any content. If we work with the Snow Leopard Foundation, it's about nature education. If I work with um, uh, the, the Museo de Arte Moderna in Sao Paulo, they have a huge, very strong hearing impaired program. If it's working with you know, another project in Myanmar with street children, it's another program. It doesn't matter what the content is. The content is what 
is given usually, and we are a design NGO. We design modules that deliver the content. We don't pretend to be specialists in that particular field, but we are good facilitators. At least we think we are good facilitators. So, and as we develop the module, it is again and again punching it in. For the first hour, we don't even think about reaching the content. We are doing silly name games, affirmation games, trust falls. We're doing all kinds of things that build connections between people, that solidify the group, that say to them, for the next three days, or maybe the three hours, or next three months, we're on a journey together, and we are seekers. The most important thing I have found is, more than the verbal, if you attach movement signatures to key points in your discourse. For example, one of the biggest things that I need to establish when I do workshops on extremely taboo subjects like sex, sexuality, sex abuse education, um, uh, transsexual uh, being, LGBTQ, when we do all those kinds of subjects, especially different parts of Asia, it is very hard to get people or anybody to even want to listen because of the amount of shame and fear that's associated with all these subjects. So the first thing we do is, I'm like, everybody throw your hair in front. And everybody's like, what? Throw your hair in front. And they all throw their hair in front. And then we're like, take out all the judgment. No more judgment. We don't judge in this space. Take it all out. Push it, push it, push it. So they most started thinking, mad woman, but it sticks. It's got sticky value. So the next time when someone starts, because they start opening up, they start talking about alternate sexualities, they start talking about abuse, and then someone's like, yeah, but you know, that's that kind of a girl. And you're like, ooh, remember? <laughs> Take it out. Take out the judgment. So you add, you give signatures, you give positivity even to negative emotions, because we have negative emotions, and that's okay. That's perfectly fine. We are here just for that, right? So, bringing the body, bringing our emotions openly, nakedly into the space means to create that sacred space, that sacred space. And this is something that can be easily and beautifully done through many forms of dance, right? Even simple exercises like move, stop, run, roll, crawl. Girls past the age of 12, 13 in India, they have, the last two, three years, their entire physical existence has been in chopping vegetables, doing homework, doing schoolwork, walking to school with a heavy bag, if they're lucky to go to school. They don't go out anymore, they don't run, they don't play, their entire body is inwards, which is why you need to move it out. I use a lot of West African dance. I trained with Ihanta Sambedo. I find her technique so beautiful to open and to use the space because their chests have gone in, the head has gone down. So through physical, just the physical positioning of the breath of the center, so much can be done, which an entire one-week discourse will get you nowhere. Right? I know, I know, I'm preaching for converted, you guys are all in on the same thing, and I'm sure I'm, you know, we know this. But I'm, each time I'm amazed at how 
doing a waka waka, Shakira, or doing Chitia Kalayave with boys, girls, men, women, other genders, it just changes the space completely. Every project that I take on usually has a separate technique that develops out of it. When we work, for example, with the visually impaired, usually we do mixed groups. We prefer not to isolate. The whole point is to get people to mingle. That develops an entire technique, maybe centered around touch. If we work with hearing impaired, that develops another technique. We do a lot of work with differently abled people. We do a lot of work with now in India with youth, especially, like I said, around gender, gender equality, sex, sexuality, and abuse. And a lot of it is with humor. Humor breaks all barriers. The first time I did the sex education module, I was shivering because it is so hard not to be labeled as a bad woman in India when you talk about sex. And I knew I was being watched by the teachers. The children don't make me shiver, it's the teachers that do. We're all like, you know. So, okay, so I started out with my first question. I have a big chocolate here, enormous one. And all the kids are like lined up, they're sitting in their seats and I say, Whoever can give me the maximum number of words for penis gets chocolate. <laughs> the first time I did it, it was in a dorm in Sikkim, and there was this big thud. A boy just had fallen off the upper bunk bed. <laughs> he hadn't a clue that could actually say things like these. But if children, if youngsters don't have words for their own private parts, how can they report abuse? One of the most heartbreaking things I have heard in my life is a 10-year-old child crying in the car. I had taken her to get, she had, had a cut on her hand, bandage, brought her back, it was evening, and because by chance I happened to get her alone, all she could do was weep and say, he did it, he did it. And I'm like, what, what happened, who did what, what? She couldn't, she didn't have words to say what it was that he did. We don't give children the words. We don't give them the basic tools to protect themselves. How is that even possible? What kind of world is this? So yes, it's a funny question. Give me a word for penis, for vagina, for vulva in your local language. But it's an important question. They need to know there's nothing of these parts. It's part of our body and that's it. So why can we name every other part and not these parts? What's so dirty about that? And when we finish this chin, the questions, the outpouring, they ask you, they are so relieved, they're so happy to find someone they can talk to not just a porn video. That's how they learn. How, they're not stupid, right? Now everybody has a phone, they're all like... And I keep telling them, I don't know if you've heard of Rajnikanth. He's like this famous Tamil hero, superstar Rajnikanth. Good job. <laughs> so he's like our equivalent of, of God, okay? There are God, lots of gods in India, he's one of them. So in a Rajnikanth typical movie, if the villain shoots him, he grabs the bullet, 
He loads his own gun and shoots it back. <laughs> because we are superstar, right? And I tell them, most of the porn they watch is like a Rajnikanth movie. Real life is very different. <laughs> so, but you need to engage in these conversations. And with this particular style of doing the workshops, we were throwing questions at them, we're getting them to move as well, they're opening up the body, it's opening up the centers of shame, opening up all that energy, circulating it, building a fellow feeling. I'm gone tomorrow, but if one child suffers from abuse, maybe there is another child or a teacher they could talk to, because I won't be there full time. The workshops center around enormous amounts of love, positivity, and positive connection. That is the meat and drink. That is the whole body of this technique. Because that's all we have. This, this is it. About 10 years ago, I did a workshop in Cambodia. It was for the Angkor Wat Photo Festival. And as part of the outreach program, we were working with Handicap International. And most of the participants were landmine victims, ex-Khmer Rouge soldiers. And the first few days, it was really hard. These were adult men. And uh, typically, that is the hardest group to work with. Children, youth are difficult, women, Usually, it's easier as a woman to connect, but adult men, sometimes it's very hard because they're told from childhood, don't show emotion, don't cry, don't show weakness. So it's very hard to open up that space of vulnerability, which is absolutely key for transformation. And this workshop was run along with Isabel Rodker, uh, a, a, a girl from the UK, a drama therapist, and Paula Holm, half Filipina and English. And in this workshop, in the first week, we asked them to write poetry, write poems, because it's easier this way than maybe through the body for them. So one of the poems that came out in the first week was the following. Thirsty, thirsty, grievously wounded, my body lies in the mud. Bleeding, bleeding. My body is pain. Pain is it at every pore. I am dying. I am dying. Mother, father, help me. Save me. Everybody has abandoned me. What sin have I committed in my past life that I should suffer now? Everybody has deserted me. No love, no village, no family. Just my hands raised as a begging bowl. Forty-two-year-old Cern, ex-Khmer Rouge soldier, wrote this poem. On the last day, we got another poem. 
It is midnight. There is a moon. And the stars sparkle. And I feel like I'm flying in the night. No worries. Just happiness. I am a rabbit, bounding under the moon. I stare at the moon and the sparkling stars. At this moment, my life is the happiest in the world. Transformation. Also written by Veth, ex-Khmer Rouge soldier. 44 years old. These are the moments we live for. Moments when you feel we are just catalysts. It's the connection between them. I don't speak Khmer. But they have managed to pull themselves together, form a group, and that group created a performance that turned for three years in Cambodia, made enough money for them to get a little bit of training, to then go on and get other jobs. That was the power of dance, movement, trust, opening the doors, vulnerability, life. When I came here three years ago, my mother was diagnosed with cancer. She gave me life, and she also taught me how one could die. She expressed her fears openly. She spoke with us. That was the first thing I learned with her. Open up, communicate. Even a fear as big as dying can be shared. After a year, she had a sudden decline. Science could only do so much. Chemotherapy, radiation, the works. It gave her time. It bought her a year. But it couldn't give quality. Quality was with people, family. We spent the happiest year of our life with her. My sister would land up with the kids. We'd have big family dinners or small ones, as she liked. That's the second thing I learned with her. The last few days of her life, when she suddenly descended, we had floods in Chennai. We have a house, we have a car, we have lots of family. But mother died with just a lamp beside her. You can take nothing with you. But she left so much behind. That's the third thing she taught me. And the last and most important thing, we had carried her up because the water had entered the house, and then we carried her down because we might have to take her to the hospital. And as we carried her down, we had just called in people from the road because there was nobody with us. She slipped off the chair, and she fell. 
my heart almost stopped. She fell, we picked her up, we put her back in the chair, and she said, she didn't shout, she said, I'm so sorry, I'm troubling you. She always thought about other people before herself. And she was filled with gratitude. My mother was gratitude, my father acceptance. He accepted that she had to leave, it was time. And she was grateful that she had so much love in her life. We are here at People Dancing now. Science, technology can take us so far. We need connection. We are here at People Dancing now. We need to accept things in our lives, in our work, that are hard, but we can accept together as a group, maybe better than alone. And we are here at People Dancing now. And we are grateful. We are grateful we can share that we have so many around us who are doing such amazing work. That's why we are at People Dancing again. For me, opportunities like this to connect, they are the reason we dance. We dance to connect.